You are listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Trevelli and co-host Jessica Strang. If you ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer a Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you wanted to know about therapy before you make your first appointment. Kelly Kitley is an Illinois-based licensed clinical social worker who has been working in the field for over 20 years and owns her own private practice, Serendipitous Psychotherapy. Kelly is a sought-after speaker and media expert, author, and producer. She wrote and self-published an award-winning Amazon best-selling autobiography, Myself. Kelly also produced a short film called Gray Area with her husband, adapted from her own book. She travels the country and uses her film to educate others about mental health. If that was not enough, Kelly's also known as Chicago's go-to expert on mental health and is a regular contributor to daytime talk shows and television. She's been featured on The Today Show, CNN, The Drew Barrymore Show, and Tamron Hall. Her work has also been featured in The Wall Street Journal, WebMD, Shape Magazine, Cosmopolitan Magazine, and The Washington Post. She currently is a weekly mental health expert contributor for NBC News Daily. We are beyond thrilled to have Kelly speak with us today. Kelly Kitley, welcome to the show. Thank you welcome, so much Kelly. for having me. Hi. Hello. Hello. It's so nice to have you on. It has been a long I'm... time coming. <laughs> <laughs> you wait, it sure has. Okay, so just you yes. know, for our listeners to know, and I don't even remember if I told you this, Jen, but Kelly and I go way back. And and in fact, yeah. like our moms actually go way back. And we, we don't have to get into all of that, but they know each other. And I think that's how like we initially met Kelly was like my mom was like, you should meet my daughter. And like, and then we became friends. Yes. And I was like, sure, I'd love to meet your daughter. And she's like, well, here's her Facebook handle. And then we started messaging. (laughs) Yes. And it's been such a great experience to get to know you because not only have I seen you, you know, like known you as in in your work as a social worker, but then seeing you also develop into a lot more things that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, But before we get into that, let's start where from the very beginning, you know, because so even Jen will kind of catch up here. Um, When did you begin studying psychology, those, you know, those early experiences that maybe you to study that in the first place? Sure. So I kind of feel like I was born a social worker. Um, <laughs> I'm the <laughs> oldest of five and come from a big family and was just always so interested in people's personalities and connecting and what made people make one decision over another and um, really did a lot of... I, grew up going to Catholic school in Chicago and social justice was always a big part of my education. And so being able to be exposed to lots of different communities, um, I just found a love and a passion for working with people. And so um, I feel fortunate that my undergrad, um, I was able to study social work and then went on to grad school and studied social work as well. So um, I feel really lucky that I knew at a young age and that's kind of shaped who I am. That's great. I feel like that's a story that's either similar to a lot of our guests where they kind of knew from very young, this is what they want to do. Or I feel like we've had a lot of guests who it's like, this is their second career and second go around. So it's great. I'm excited to hear more about kind of your journey and your passion and your path. Um, Can you, Kelly, tell us a little bit more about what you currently do Sure. So I own Serendipitous Psychotherapy, and um, it was on the Magnificent Mile, um, Jessica, where we met in the. the I remember lobby. that. <laughs> yes, I remember that. That office was amazing. It was. It was. And, um, you know, since the pandemic, I've moved my practice um, to all Zoom, or I do walk and talk therapy, or I do home visits. And so I don't have a brick and mortar um, office, but there's a lot of flexibility in how I see clients. Um, So I am a full-time psychotherapist, and then I am also an author. And um, I like to say I volunteer my time to do a lot of media. um, Yes, you do. (laughs) You are the go-to expert. I mean, I don't know if you knew this, Jen, 
Um, but Kelly's been on Today, CNN, uh, Tamara wow. Hall. You know, I mean, you're, you really are the go-to. How did how, how did that come about? <laughs> um, just being really scrappy, you know, when I... Um, <laughs> When I published my book and I ended up self-publishing it on Amazon. Um, and it's myself. That's what it's called. Correct. Um, okay. And people said, you have to get a publicist. And um, I looked into that and it was like $10,000 a month. Um, oh, and ouch. <laughs> Whoa. I didn't have that kind of money. So <laughs> I thought, well, there's got to be a different way. And so I just got really familiar with LinkedIn and started pitching to different um, producers and um, kind of got, they say this a lot in, in media, needing to be at the right place at the right time. Um, mm -hmm. And the Chicago Tribune, um, Heidi Stevens, who has been, uh, you know, columnist for the Chicago Tribune, no longer, but for about 20 years, wrote an article about my book. Um, and amazing. The Today mm -hmm. Show was doing a, um, a segment on mom drinking culture and saw the Chicago Tribune article and they kind of happened simultaneously. And, wow. and that's kind of how it unfolded. And so um, now I just, I love being able to, I'm a regular contributor on NBC News Daily, which is a live streaming um, show on NBC News Now. And um, I'm passionate about it because I don't get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But it is, it's, it's just an opportunity to reach as many people as possible yes. and educate and break the silence and the stigma and the misconceptions about mental health. I love that because that is definitely needed. And I'm glad that you're able to kind of have that role and, and really kind of reach a lot of people this way. Mm -hmm. So that's Thank wonderful. You. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what um, your interests are in psychology, kind of what your focuses are? Absolutely. So I feel like I have, uh, my clients have aged with me. Um, and so when I started in social work, um, it really was in community mental health and child welfare. And as I started having my own children, my husband and I have four kids um, between the ages of 10 and 16, I felt that I, I really needed to pivot and kind of look at what my future of social work would look like. Um, and so I went into private practice and really focused. I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. So initially I was working a lot with um, young moms who were transitioning into parenthood and struggling with postpartum depression. Um, and I feel that my clients have aged with me, as I said, where now, um, especially after the pandemic, mostly I work with women who are trying to look at what their next phase of life is and maybe got caught up in some alcohol abuse over the pandemic with just trying to manage all of life and having mm -hmm. kids at home and um, parenting and carrying a lot of the emotional labor. Um, but my, I mean, that's a long-winded question, right? There's not, not one type um, of client I work with, but um, I would say majority of my caseload, at least at this moment, are women between the ages of 40 to 50 who are moms. Amazing, amazing. And, you yes. know, one of the, the reasons why we wanted to have you on, and we were really excited to speak to you today, was because there is this culture that I think you just kind of hinted at before mm -hmm. that you've talked about on, 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 you know, on television, and that is this gray area drinking. Can you mm -hmm. talk about, number one, what that is? Because sure. I wasn't familiar with the term. No. I was familiar with substance abuse, uh, binge drinking, um, but what mm -hmm. is gray area drinking? And um, is it the same as having substance abuse issues? So that's a great question. Um, and it's not actually a clinical term, um, okay. just like alcoholic isn't a clinical term. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of these labels that, um, you know, I have found over the last 10 years since my, I've been sober and, and um, abstained, decided to mm -hmm. abstain from alcohol after kind of doing my research and knowing that mm -hmm. there's a long family history of mm -hmm. um, alcohol and drug abuse in my family of origin, um, that 
I tried to manage and control my drinking for 20 years and I never fit criteria of having alcohol use disorder or substance abuse. Um, I could drink on the weekend and then not have a drink for 30 days of marathon training. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had this idea of what somebody with a substance abuse problem had Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, kind of this old school mentality. They lost their job. They lost their family. They ended up in jail. They had a DUI. Um, And so for myself, I feel like I continued to drink in a way that was problematic because I didn't meet that criteria. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was like thinking, well, I've never hit rock bottom before. I must be doing okay. You know, I grew up above my parents' bar in Lincoln Park. And so Mm -hmm. I grew up in a very normalized alcohol saturated culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Even without growing up in the bar, I think our country is alcohol saturated, you know, totally um, in terms of the normalization of drinking. Um, And especially for parents to kind of take the edge off or, you know, get through the boredom of some of the younger years of parenting. And so um, gray area is really just kind of starting to come to light. There, there there's some um, other women who got sober around the same time that I did, who've written books, um, Holly Whitaker, We Are the Luckiest, and Laura McCowan, or I'm sorry, vice versa. Uh, Laura McCowan wrote We Are the Luckiest, and mm-hmm. Holly Whitaker wrote Quit Like a Woman. And it's this, um, you know, alcohol use, it, I look at it along a spectrum. And so you have people who don't drink um, just because they never really liked it or, you know, Mm -hmm. grew up in a family where alcohol wasn't so normalized. And then people who, you know, have really hit rock bottom and lost everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, you don't get the label unless you're one or the other. Um, And I actually really hate labels. And so gray area Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) is this all this stuff in between, right? So it's like, um, I might not fit diagnostic criteria of having withdrawals or having blackouts or, you know, increased tolerance, but I might do things that I regret the next day, or I might not be able to show up as the best mom or wife or friend or daughter that I can be. And maybe I have a preoccupation with how much should I drink, or maybe I should try to cut back. And so um, for me personally, it was always this like, negotiation I was making with myself and rules I was putting around, like, I'm just going to go out tonight and have two drinks. Um, And then Mm -hmm. I'm going to, and if I overdo it, then this feeling of like wanting to punish myself the next day by, you know, going out for an hour run or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, saying I'm not drinking for the next, you know, dry January is Mm -hmm. relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've really been educating my clients and also in speaking engagements about this gray area drinking where it, it, it's what it sounds like. It's like, I don't fully identify as having a problem with alcohol, but I'm going to look at how alcohol plays a role in my life. Is it helping? Is it hindering? Um, how is it affecting my whole health, my relationships? And so that's usually this first step in terms of how we approach it in treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, Just kind of looking at how, how much you're drinking, what it does for you, if you have triggers around when you want to drink, and then kind of just doing some record keeping. And certainly if people aren't finding success in being able to moderate their drinking, um, then it kind of does move over into that area of alcohol use disorder. I think that, is, I mean, Kelly, sorry, go, what were you going to say? No, you, okay, okay, sorry. Um, I think that is so important, you know, the, this mm-hmm. topic that you're bringing up, because I feel like it's, uh, and, and I don't know, John, if you would agree, um, but during pandemic, especially, mm-hmm. I know that I was monitoring how much I was drinking in the very beginning of the pandemic, like, you know, the, the, the whole lockdown and, and whatnot, just because it was like, you know, it felt like cocktail hour every night because mm-hmm. there was nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that was like what I saw all my peers doing. And then I was like, uh, this is like more than, well, first of all, we, we, we gained weight, but, but that was to me the big indicator. And I'm like, I'm not sleeping well. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is a problem. That, and then I and then I would talk to other people and they would just continue on and, and my husband and I just kind of made the decision I'm like this is a lot 
more than would would be normal right Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. us would be more normal and so I wonder if you also you know have seen that like more of an uptick you know pandemic because people were doing like zoom happy hours every night right (laughs) I mean and it still do yeah yes Mm -hmm. and it was like we I mean your days and your weekends like there was no weekend there was no weekday everything blended in and so it was like oh yeah well I would I would normally go out to dinner but I don't go out to dinner and have a drink so I'm just gonna drink at home and Right. Mm-hmm. There's no one taking it away or saying no. Ten dollars a glass. You know what I mean. So you don't have to work. Like you're not driving anywhere. You're at home. So you're like, well, it doesn't matter if I have more because I don't have to. I don't have to limit myself because I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's there is data to support that too. I mean, the New York Post did a study that th- the. Um, 323% of women increased their alcohol use during the pandemic with wow. kids under that's... five years old. Oh my um, goodness. Okay. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So there's concrete mm-hmm. evidence. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let me look at this. I'm drinking too much. Let me cut back. Um, and have success in that, right? And they're not problematic drinkers. Um, but then there's other people who are like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm having racing thoughts and the alcohol takes mm-hmm. the edge off and I'm having okay. anxiety in the morning. You know, that feeling of like increased worry and shame and regret. And, um, you know, then that kind of bleeds over into another category. And, and what I'm trying to help people do is not wait until you hit rock bottom to make changes, you know, let's, let's do some harm reduction here if we can. Um, And look, there are people I've worked with for five years who've kind of on and off looked at their drinking and tried moderation management and tried, you know, dry January and things like that and find some success, but then ultimately say, I am sick and tired of like trying to manage and control my drinking. I think abstinence might be the best way. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I can imagine it's difficult. Oh, sorry, go ahead. John. No, no, you can continue. I would just say it's, it must be difficult then, especially yeah. because, you know, one of the reasons why we also wanted to talk to you specifically, you know, this month is because we're just heading into the holidays. So yes. having mm-hmm. abstinence, um, I can imagine is difficult, period. Mm-hmm. But then when we're in these like holiday party cocktail driven events that are happening from now until like, I don't know, uh, February 14th, you know what I mean? Like, right. it's like constant every month or something. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the people mm-hmm. that are, you know, starting with that? And what, what advice do you think that would be relevant for our listeners to hear? That's a great question. And I can offer some really concrete tools for that. You know, I mean, drinking can be really habitual and we don't even think about it. And so we walk mm-hmm. into a party, somebody hands us a drink, we're having a drink, somebody's walking around with a bottle of wine and continuing to pour people's glasses up and before you know it, you know, you've had four, five, six drinks. Um, and then you're feeling pretty awful about yourself mm-hmm. or you're feeling great, but then the next yeah. morning, you know, you feel horrible. Um, and so I just really recommend that people try to take a mindful approach of okay, there are a lot of family get-togethers or friends givings, and you know, certainly lots of holiday parties. How can you approach these in a whole health perspective, you know, around food and alcohol so that it doesn't uh-huh. feel so uh, like you're in, over imbibing um, and then, which is why we get to January and everybody's like, I'm, I'm going on a diet, I'm giving up alcohol and it's like, you know, right. it's so nice to get mm-hmm. to January and be like, I don't need to do any of those things because right. I w- was really mindful about decisions that I made made. Um, and maybe it's alternating, you know, a glass of water in between a glass of wine, or there's Mm -hmm. so many mocktails Mm -hmm. now, you know, I love, I still love the fancy wine glass, you know, and I have ice and, um, some LaCroix and, um, you know, a splash of cranberry and a lime and it's still like refreshing and delicious mm-hmm. and I don't need to have six of those um mm-hmm. one is good you know <laughs> and so whether it's choosing a non-alcoholic beverage or just you know kind of putting a a plan in place before you head out and say you know what I'm just gonna try to drink very mindfully and have two drinks going into this celebratory time or I'm going to choose not to and you know there's also that other social pressure that everybody asks you know mm-hmm. um, why aren't you drinking is something wrong you know I've heard people say they've been 
asked if they're pregnant or if there's something, oh. some medical <laughs> situation, you know, maybe that's yeah. just in my world. Um, but you know, no, 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 we've heard this. We've, I mean, yes. yeah, I mean, I remember very clearly just as an aside when I was actually pregnant with, I, I can't remember Jen, when we were doing that bags tournament with your family. Do you remember that? Yes. I think, and yeah, like, I think it was Sophia. It was Sophia. I was mm-hmm. pregnant with her and I remember I didn't want people to ask about it yet. So I pretended to have, well, I had a mocktail, but they thought I was having a cranberry vodka, you know, because right. people would have asked me, right. they right. would have said why. Yeah. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to report that, but I completely, yeah, I've heard that. And so that's another kind of tool to go into a situation like that because people will say something or they might, mm-hmm. you know, and so not wanting to add extra stress to a situation like that, you know, sometimes people don't feel comfortable saying I'm not drinking and will kind of pretend to hold something in their hands just because they don't want all the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is what that person is comfortable with. And it's so interesting because it's like nobody questions, um, you know, if we don't want to eat the plate of brownies. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, But in like why we're not drinking. So, um, you know, I do, you know, I'm no fortune teller, but I do think that we're moving in a direction that uh, with alcohol that smoking has gone to, Mm -hmm. you know, just in terms of people realizing the negative health impact that it has on our body and maybe thinking about giving it up altogether or just, you know, really cutting back. Absolutely. I've been to several restaurants more recently where they have, you know, you get, you get your cocktail menu and your drink menu from them Mm -hmm. and they have an entire section on spirit free drinks Mm -hmm. and cocktails. And it's like great to see that because sometimes you don't, you know, sometimes you don't want you just want to, you still want a fancy drink. Mm-hmm. You don't want, you want the little umbrella in your cup. Um, and this way you can get it without having to get like a Shirley Temple, like a little kid. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we're doing an event. Um, so I adapted my um, book myself into a short film called Gray Area. And it is about, um, you know, it's my story. Um, Mm -hmm. And my husband is an actor and he plays himself in it. And so we have been showcasing this film around the country and we're doing an event in Naperville, January 12th at a, uh, it's called Go Brewing and it's a non-alcoholic brewing company. And so they still have beer on tap, but it's non-alcoholic beer. Um, And they have um, non-alcoholic wines and champagne. And, you know, I mean, I think just something I do want to caution is, you know, there are people who have, you know, chronic alcohol Mm -hmm. um, problems. And so for somebody who's like a daily drinker and has increased their tolerance, you know, stopping abruptly could have some detrimental Mm -hmm. um, problems Mm -hmm. in terms of like seizures and um, going through withdrawal symptoms and things like that. So um, I do anybody who has family members or, you know, is listening their self and is struggling um, that medical detox is really the appropriate way um, Mm -hmm. to, come off of the alcohol and not doing it on your own. So um, sometimes medical intervention is the answer. Absolutely. And I don't think people oftentimes realize how um, scary and how life-threatening detoxing from alcohol Mm -hmm. can be if you try to do it on your own. We usually hear kind of detoxing from other drugs as being, you know, very challenging and difficult, but it definitely can be very scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's because it's legal, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, right. Well, I mean, we wouldn't, we, it, it's not problematic if we can go into the grocery store and buy it, you know? Right. Um, right. And so I think oftentimes there is um, a misconception about, you know, even the frustration with addicts for family members, like, don't they know how bad it is? I wish they just stop. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, they are, are physically and psychologically addicted. And so there's a lot more intervention that needs to happen around, you know, inpatient treatment or medical detox other than just stopping the substance. And a lot of times it's like, 
we have to look at what's underneath it. You know, like, why are we driven to want to drink all the time? Is mm-hmm. it because we're so, as a society and a culture, we're so overwhelmed and, um, you know, anxiety is in an all-time high and alcohol mm-hmm. is an immediate release? Um, probably, you know, and so it's like substituting behaviors. Alcohol is really easy and takes the edge off pretty quickly, but, you know, meditation and yoga and getting outside and, lifting your face to the sun, those all help too Mm -hmm. in kind of shifting your focus and helping you feel more grounded. Absolutely. Is there anything that you could, um, you know, suggest or recommend if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, this is, you know, this is my, you know, my spouse or my friend Mm -hmm. or my, Mm -hmm. you know, sibling, how can we help our loved ones who might be experiencing gray area drinking it's not you know it's not quite to the part where they've hit rock bottom and mm-hmm, but we're mm-hmm. so concerned how can we support them so you know it's tough because anytime somebody kind of brings to light a concern our automatic response typically is to be defensive about it mm-hmm. um and so i think the best way to shed light on it with a a spouse or family member or friend is not in the moment. Don't bring it up as you (laughs) both are pouring a glass of wine, Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) you know, but more so in in casual conversation as you're talking about how work's going and, you know, things like that, you could say, Hey, I've noticed you've been drinking more. Um, I'm wondering if that's something that you've been aware of, or, you know, if maybe you want to go to a workout class together or, or suggest other things. So you really want to take a gentle approach in terms of just bringing it up. Because a lot of times people don't bring it up and then it builds and builds and builds. And then the way that it ends up coming out um, tends to be accusatory and shameful. um, And then it just creates more problematic drinking. Um, So really leading with love and compassion and curiosity. I think that's great. I think that it's yeah. so wonderful to, you know, to at least to have a game plan uh, when you see somebody that's struggling or when someone is struggling themselves, you know, um, mm-hmm. and finding, you know, resources and finding other support and just saying, maybe this is what's happening. Let's do something other than, you know, hit the bar with all your girlfriends. You know what I mean? Like, right. Maybe, you know, because I feel like, and I agree with you. I think it's when people talk about alcoholism and drinking and like, why don't people stop doing this? And it's like what you had said earlier, Kelly, it's a cultural thing. And especially, mm-hmm. I think it's a mommy culture thing, mm-hmm. which I've, I've seen. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I, I'm not a fan of. And so sometimes there's like, you know, mom events, like everybody meet at this bar. And I'm like, I don't want to go <laughs> like, and it's not because <laughs> I don't want to have a drink. It's just because like, I know what, you know, you kind of know what is going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. and you kind of feel like this is overwhelming. Can't we do something different? Like, why can't we do yoga? <laughs> and if you want a mimosa, that's fine. But I mean, can it be something different? You know, and mm-hmm. so I think it's so saturated. And I think it mm-hmm. is hard for people to recognize, you know, that it's problematic. It is. And, you know, now they even have yoga and wine. You know, where... well, that means... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, like, <laughs> and, and it is it's and, and so I think too, but like you said, there's options then if I don't want to mm-hmm. engage, you're not gonna be doing yoga at a bar, you know, so right. it's like, if you do go to a yoga class with wine, I know other yoga classes that I've been to offer other options outside Mm -hmm. of alcohol so that there are other options. And I think that that's culturally where we were trying to move is giving people choices rather than Mm -hmm. feeling like I either participate or I don't. And I feel really left out when I don't, um, or I can't. And so it's, it's trying to be all inclusive. I think that's great. And I think in, you know, one, one of the reasons why we also wanted to talk to you today was because of another topic Mm -hmm. that you Mm -hmm. are quite an expert in, but it's also something that I think people just don't talk about a lot. And that is postpartum Mm -hmm. depression. And Mm -hmm. Kelly, would you be able to talk to us about what that is? What's postpartum depression and how does that differ from just, I guess, regular old depression, you know, like what we think of? Sure. So, you know, this, they kind of go hand in hand and I'm, I'm speaking as an expert and as a mom who experienced mm-hmm. postpartum mood disorders after my kids and self-medicated with alcohol to take the anxiety mm-hmm. edge off. Um, so I, you know, 
having a child is a huge transition, whether you're, you're going from zero to one or one to two, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is a a chemical component and hormonal component that within those first two weeks of having a baby, um, you know, women do pretty frequently experience the baby blues where they're feeling a Mm -hmm. little more emotional or they're having a hard time sleeping. Um, And so I, that's just kind of an overall view. So within the first two weeks, there's an adjustment period that happens and we carry over into this, you know, kind of uh, mood disorder, postpartum depression. I look at as an umbrella um, that underneath that is postpartum anxiety, panic, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, you know, psychosis. And this is kind of another situation where it's, um, you know, this idea that it's so extreme. So I'll hear women, Mm -hmm. you know, who reach out and say, I might be experiencing postpartum depression, but I don't want to kill my baby, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, that's an extreme situation. And it does happen, although rare, but there's all this other stuff in between. Mm -hmm. Um, And so postpartum depression is really, um, you know, it's depression after first year. And so it looks very similar to you know, quote unquote, regular depression. Um, it's just can be experienced up to a year after having a baby. So it's feeling hopeless and helpless. Um, and also, you know, experiencing some rage or difficulty concentrating or restlessness, um, you know, crying a lot, withdrawing, disengaging. Um, some women often report that they experience agoraphobia, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. fear of leaving the house or leaving with the baby because they're not sure how the baby's going to be outside of the home. And so, um, you know, I think any woman who has had a child, um, can identify what of transition and just not feeling like yourself. Um, but typically it goes away after, a couple of weeks if you're not experiencing any disorder. It's when you've had some of the symptoms I described for longer than two weeks, and Mm -hmm. it can happen up to a year of having a baby. So sometimes people will get through those first, you know, three months when you go into Mm -hmm. the year OBGYN and they check in on you and, you know, you're like, whew, I dodged that bullet. I don't have postpartum depression. But then it's, you know, six months and maybe you're just going back to work if you're lucky um, and have that much time off. And and you're starting to recognize, you know, preoccupation with being away from the baby or worrying Mm -hmm. about the baby's safety or, um, you know, not sleeping, even though you're exhausted um, or you're crying or you're having panic attacks. Um, then that still qualifies as a postpartum mood disorder um, up until a year. And then if if you are starting to experience any kind of symptoms after a year of giving birth, then it does go into the category of generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, OCD. I think it's great that, you know, you're talking about this and shine the light because I think there's a lot of, especially if like newer moms Mm -hmm. who maybe are not like they think of well postpartum depression is those extreme cases it's the thoughts of wanting to kill my child it's the thoughts of wanting you know to have harm and it's I'm struggling with this because I'm not a good mom or I'm Mm -hmm. not good at what I'm doing and Mm -hmm. and this is just I should be better I shouldn't be feeling this way and so I'm you know I'm glad we're kind of showing this light because it is not that's not the case I mean there is such a spectrum of postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and postpartum mood disorder that I think we don't, people don't always realize that it can last up until a year after your baby's born. And and there's varying degrees of it. Mm -hmm. And because we are kind of societally driven to say, oh my gosh, isn't it, isn't having a baby the best? Mm -hmm. You're so lucky. And you know, it's so beautiful. Then when you're not feeling like that, you feel worse about yourself. So it is, you know, um, being able to just, again, check in on a sister or a cousin or a friend who just had a baby and, you know, really ask how they're doing. And um, I think it can feel very overwhelming at times. So making sure that, you know, you're offering just, you know, spend time with them or run an errand or, you know, also, suggesting that, you know, medication and therapy is the best 
combination of treating postpartum depression. And so, you know, a lot of times um, I'll have people reach out and say, you know, two years after they've had their baby who are, are you know, were never treated, say mm-hmm. like, I think I might have had some postpartum issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, two years later, they're, they're just kind of getting their head above water. <laughs> they're saying like, wow, um, I didn't even realize it or I didn't think it was that bad. So I didn't seek treatment. I think that what you just hit upon that point, Kelly, about not assuming that just because, you know, I mean, having a child is a wonderful thing, but not every single day is going to be roses and rainbows. You know what I mean? And so the mm-hmm. fact that people do assume, you know, oh, you just said this baby's not great. Instead of maybe just saying, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> how are you doing? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's, and then and that could also goes for a gray area drinking, right? Like, how are mm-hmm. you doing? You know, I got, in, instead of just making that assumption, why aren't you drinking or you're drinking too much or whatever? It's always, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. like, it, I think instead of being, you know, saying, going to those extremes, just being very simple and thoughtful and mindful about, hmm, maybe this person who hasn't slept for like six months right. might be tired. It might affect their mood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How are they doing? Do you want me to hold that baby while you take a nap? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I mean, it sounds like you both kind of um, agree with me in terms of the labeling. Like we have to label yes. right. for treatment purposes, right? It's like, what's going on? If we label it, we know how to treat it. Um, and we can and talk also- to each other about it too. That's the right. piece, right? Exactly. So like if I'm, if I'm referring you to somebody, I want you to know what kind of OCD it is that, you yes. know, how extreme is it? But I don't think people need to know that. Like, I mean, they don't need no. to use those labels in a day-to-day life. No. And so that's where we get tripped up because mm-hmm. I mean, even in my own experience, when I stopped drinking, people were like, what? You, you're not an alcoholic. If you're an alcoholic, then I'm an alcoholic. I drink just like you. And it's like, mm-hmm. but the way that I feel about my alcohol use maybe different than the way that you feel about your own. Mm -hmm, And so it is, I I spent so much time comparing myself, you know, I'm like, how come all these other people around me are drinking the way I do? And they don't think they have a problem. Um, And so it's got to be blinders on sometimes, you know, we can't Mm -hmm. compare and say, I'm not better. My drinking isn't worse or better than that person. It's just not working for me. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody is reporting that they're not feeling their best rather than minimizing because I think we do that to make people feel better Mm -hmm. about themselves Mm -hmm. (laughs) um say tell me more about that right like be curious about it um and and I think that then people can get the help that they need and there are so many resources out there for people who are looking at um any of this, you know, I mean, there's a great online um, forum called She Recovers. And the idea is we're all recovering from something, whether it's postpartum, whether it's um, codependency, divorce, alcohol abuse, they've really blown up. Um, It's a Canadian mother and daughter who started She Recovers. I'm not sure exactly how long ago. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to say like a decade, but um, it has, they have events, they have free meetings, and it's all virtual. Um, they have two meetings a day. So that's a, something that people can look at um, as a resource to kind of gather information and get literature and try to educate themselves. That's great. I Thank you for that. that. Yeah. yeah, That sounds like a great, a great resource and a, a great way to kind of help like and starting to end the stigma of seek, seeking help and seeking out that it's okay for me not to feel this way. And it's okay for me to reach out to somebody and get help if I'm not feeling the way that I want to feel, or something's not making me feel my best self, that it's okay to, it's okay to get support and get help and reach out and know that there's other people that are feeling the exact same way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you don't have to wait to ask for help. Sometimes people Um, I want to ask about therapy. I'm not really sure I need it. Uh And it's like, you know what? We could all benefit from a year of therapy. Everybody. (laughs) Absolutely. I think we'd all be a little more relatable, have more empathy for one another. Like, you don't have to be down and out desperate to start therapy, which, you know, I hope we're changing that dialogue too. But I I think even our parents' generation, it was like, wow, something must have really been wrong with you to to seek therapy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know, now, I feel I mean, generationally like, sorry, yes. generationally now it seems like um, this newer generation is very mm-hmm. therapy friendly <laughs> yes. and I think yes. it's normalized it, mm-hmm. you know, so that people like I, 
I meet so many young people, not just in my office, but just in general. And, you know, a lot of them are like, mom, my therapist says, you know, like totally. it literally is like, what right. they, you know, and I'm like, because it's just so normal yeah. versus yeah. like maybe us Gen Xers, you know, mm -hmm. that had like, you know, it would be like, there's something wrong with you if you're seeing a therapist yeah. and there's like, yeah. like, well, there's a reason why they're all busy. <laughs> so there's something, right. is it something wrong with everybody or maybe yeah. this is just a normal thing to do. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, and even, you know, with our own kids too, I think school has gotten better at having mm -hmm. uh you know quiet time or what do yes. my kids call it the younger kids like um uh i forget the name of it but there's like a, a bean bag in the yes. in the classroom that's like a time out we have a chill zone at our chill zone yeah, chill yes, zone. That's yeah, the name yeah. Of it. uh huh <laughs> which is so great it's like and then oh my god you can go oh, to I love it. oh wow so i, I like think that. they're getting better or you know they're learning about mindfulness and breath work and meditation yeah. and gosh those are great tools to have that like i certainly didn't learn until my 40s <laughs> no i've always said school should have i've always thought school should have a, you should have a coping skills like coping skills mm -hmm. should be a subject in school because you can never you can one never have too many coping skills but mm -hmm. a lot of times people don't realize what they're using as coping skills or how, just how to handle situations. And mm -hmm. it should mm -hmm. be, it should be taught from kindergarten on. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> I completely agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, Kelly, part of why Jessica and I, you know, started our podcast and have different experts like yourself on our podcast is we really want to help people who are listening, feel comfortable seeking out help, feel comfortable um, getting therapy, kind of asking, we're kind of asking the questions that, you know, everybody wishes they knew, but they were too scared to ask. So what would be some things that you would say people should expect or not expect in therapy? Um, so I, I think go in with no expectations. Um, no, <laughs> I, uh, I think, look, oftentimes, if somebody doesn't have a great experience in terms of that initial session with a therapist, don't write it off completely. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So much of it is about connection, right? And so you could be recommended to the best expert in you know, postpartum depression treatment in the Chicagoland area, and then feel like I didn't have any connection with that person. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is really important to feel heard and seen and that that you do have a safe environment that you're connecting with somebody. Um, and being able to know, I mean, we know when we meet somebody for the first time, how we connect with them within the first five minutes, you know, mm -hmm. the feeling you get um, when talking to somebody. And if it doesn't feel like a good fit, there's no harm or shame in that. Um, there are not great therapists out there, just as there aren't great car mechanics out there, you know? And so mm -hmm. I think the best way to find a therapist is often to ask a friend or a family member, you know, um, who may know of somebody or had a good experience with somebody, obviously not crossing over in conflict of interest, um, mm -hmm. of like a mother and a daughter seeing the same therapist mm -hmm. perhaps, but, right. um, you know, give yourself an opportunity to like do some research, maybe try a couple of sessions. Um, and I do think if you like lead with your gut, that you'll know when you found the right fit. And, um, you know, that's the expectation that I think going into therapy is very helpful because it can be a very overwhelming and daunting task um, that people are like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know who to ask. Does my insurance cover it? You know, so <laughs> mm -hmm. really go in like thinking about what you want. Do you want somebody who is similar in age to you? Do you want a, a man or a woman? Do you want somebody who's the same ethnicity? You know, those kinds of things to think about um, just initially. I think that's great. I really like the fact that you did say sometimes some therapists aren't great because sometimes they're not. Or maybe they're not a good fit for you, right? Or yeah, like, you know, right. Like what I, you know, what I found too in private practice is that sometimes if people are, you know, even going to the initial session is daunting and then feeling comfortable. Okay, that's another part. And then feeling comfortable enough to say that really big thing they wanted to tell you the first session, but they'll wait till the fourth session. Yeah. And so that it is a process, right? You know, mm -hmm. so it's like, mm -hmm. and to stick with that process, sometimes you feel like, I don't know what I'm getting into. 
-hmm. But, you know, I think that's great that you outlined it. This is what it, you need to feel safe. You need to feel comfortable and you need to feel kind of like if trusting your gut, is this a good person mm -hmm. for me or not? Mm -hmm. And, and on the other side of that too, you know, there's sometimes I'll see somebody who's, who I ask how their previous experience was with therapy and they're like, Eh, it was okay. And I say, how long did you see that therapist? And they're like, two years. I'm like, why? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. You know, like, you can break up with your therapist. Know that, you know, you're going to take a break or that you've gotten what you've needed at this point. And, you know, um, I think that that's really important too, because sometimes people don't want to start with somebody else because they're like, oh, I don't want to start all over again. Right. You don't have to. You start where you're at. And, you know, don't keep showing up for the same therapy week by week if you're not getting what you need. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I really like that because we, Jen and I know someone that, you know, has had multiple therapists and I thought it was the most brilliant thing when she told us that because it was for different parts of her life. Like she felt, right. okay, I have to close that chapter uh -huh. um, with that. Right, Jen? Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. And I think it is, I think it's, I mean, you wouldn't stick with like, if you were, if you went to get your hair done and the person you were not happy with it, you wouldn't continue to go to somebody <laughs> that you're not yes. happy with. Right. And right. The same case with a the therapist. <laughs> well, that's diagnostic in and of itself, right? It's like, totally. Well, yeah. Showing up for that person, you know, <laughs> that you're not getting what you need. So Kelly, therapy what do you, banter. Yes. What do you like, Kelly, what do you like most about your work? Mm. I love um, the depth of being able to connect with somebody. I think, you know, oftentimes I was looking for that in my own personal life um, mm -hmm. when I was younger, like wanting to ask really hard questions and divulge some really deep things um, and always found, not always, but frequently found myself feeling like, oh, that was too much for somebody. Or you really probably, the person wasn't very comfortable with that question you asked them, you know, because it was at a cocktail party or whatever it might be. Um, so just being able to like show up and be so vulnerable is like the biggest gift as a therapist and as a client um, to know that you have permission to talk about anything that you want to talk about. And to me, that just feels like such a privilege to be able to speak with people on such an in-depth platform, and not platform, therapy office, mm -hmm. um, but you know, on such an in-depth circumstance, I guess, um, that is like, you are coming here not to shoot the shit with somebody. You're coming mm -hmm. here to get deep you know, and talk about things that really scare you or excite you or that you're struggling with. Oh, that's great. And you can, I mean, just in our conversations here, you can just see your passion for your work and what you do comes through so much. Um, and so that's great. One of the questions that we ask all of our guests is what is something you wish people knew about either your work therapy, psychology in general, anything that you want to demystify mm -hmm. in the area of therapy for our listeners? Yes. So um, just another kind of like, um, I don't know, pop culture thing that that I is top of mind because I just watched it this weekend. Stutz. It's with Jonah Hill and his therapist. It's a documentary. Oh, you know what? And, I just heard about no. this. And I was oh like, I gosh. thought it was an interesting premise. It's yeah, go, please so go ahead. Good. Describe it for everyone. Yeah. Um, and, and I was like, yes, this is it. Because <laughs> when I wanted to write an autobiography, I had colleagues say to me, that will ruin your career. You're supposed to be the expert. What about all these clients who've been seeing you for years are now reading about some of this past trauma and that you struggled with alcohol abuse? And, um, you know, it's a tell-all. And so mm -hmm. people really told me not to do it. But I knew it was something I always wanted to do. And I was like, well, if my career fails, I'll go back to bartending or something. <laughs> um, and mm. I did it anyway. And it actually did the opposite. And I had mm -hmm. people say to me like, yeah. oh, now I can talk about my alcohol use. Or mm. I can tell you about this trauma I've been terrified of, you know, telling anybody about. Um, and so I think the miss 
perception is that therapists are these like all knowing experts who've never experienced anything Mm -hmm. um, traumatic and, you know, flipping that switch and saying, actually, most of us came into this profession because we had um, specific experiences in our own life. And for me, therapy is what really helped me. And I wanted to be that for somebody else. And so I think the therapy doesn't end up being about us, right? The therapist, but it certainly is helpful to know, like, no, I have to practice what I preach too. And I have a daily practice of taking care of myself and being in therapy and, you know, those things that make me a better therapist, I think. Not, not feeling like that person, you know, is really well studied, but never experienced anything personally. I think it makes us more human. Um, and sometimes people come in feeling like we're, maybe we're not like as human as they think we are. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's totally true, mm-hmm. Kelly, because I, there's people that have found me through this podcast and mm-hmm. I didn't know that until mm-hmm. afterwards they see me and they're like, it's because that you could talk about real things in a real way. And, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, because sometimes we'll do, we do mention Jen and I things about ourselves or our lives mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and it just becomes more, um, you know, just more human, you know, you mm-hmm. kind of humanize a therapist, you know, and we're, yeah, we're not some monolithic, you know, person, you know, that yes, you, right. you know what I mean? Like we have experiences, we have good days and bad days too, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? But, right. and you, you know, obviously our professional, you don't, you keep that, you know, figure that out how to fix that. But yes, you know, everyone has a story and I think that you sharing it, of course, makes, mm-hmm. you know, you a much more, you know, knowledgeable and relatable person, you know, mm-hmm. not just a therapist, just person. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, well Kelly, 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 Kelly. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I I, I I talked to you forever and ever. I know Jennifer probably loved meeting you yes. today as well. Thank um, you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast today. Yes. You are so Absolutely. welcome. And, and um, blessings to everybody getting ready to go through the holidays. And, you know, um, just a nugget is to, you know, try something different and see how that works. I like that. I like, I like that. that too. I think it was perfect well, time. I know it's taken us a little while to get to, to, to <laughs> being able to record this, but I think it was such a timely, like everything, all the stars all aligned for us to do this today. And I think it's such a timely opportunity for us to put this out for our listeners with the holidays approaching. Yes. Yes. And, and, and we, we have more questions to ask you, but there was a, a laundry list for our <laughs> listeners, a laundry list of things that I wanted to talk about. Jennifer wanted to talk about with Kelly. These are the two topics we talked about today, but we are going to have to have you back on in 2023. Yes. So oh, just to let great. you know, um, we have more topics. Um, but for now, for more information on Kelly Kitley and her work, you can find her at www.kellykitley.com. And that's K E L L E Y K I L. K-I-T-L-E-Y.com. You can also check out her book on called Myself on Amazon. Kelly, like she had mentioned before, also travels across the country educating people about mental health with her short film called Gray Area. Thank you for listening. And as always, subscribe to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy, But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast everywhere you listen to good, God, sorry, good podcast <laughs> and give us your five-star review. Not about me flubbing the line, but usually a five-star <laughs> review about something. Uh, follow us on Instagram at therapy underscore podcast for updates, additional information, and message us with topics and questions you always want to know, but we're too afraid to ask. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to good podcasts and keep up with episode updates on Instagram. Follow us at therapy underscore podcast underscore. You can send us messages on topics you'd like to hear or anything that comes to mind. Bye for now.